Hi and hello, Watch fans, and welcome to another episode of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighborhood watchmaker, Rob Nuts, and my co-host, Alan Ben-Joseph. Today, we are diving back into the mailbag, a very full mailbag, bursting at the seams, as they say, to find some of your more interesting questions and hopefully light-hearted topics, which we will address today. Alan, how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing well, buddy. How are you? And you know, I've been listening to you. You're not friendly, and you're not a neighborhood watchmaker, so why do you always say that in the intro? It's a joke. It's a Spider-Man joke. I don't know where it came from or why I started doing it, but it's just become like, hang on a second. What do you mean I'm not friendly? <laughs> well, I'm, fr- I'm friendly to some people, just not you. That's true. Honestly, we have our real-time show network, and you're very friendly to all our members in that group. But to me, you're not that nice. Yeah, well, they haven't had a chance to piss me off yet. So, yeah, you know, that's true. No, no, so I'm sorry. So, I think it's going to be that kind of an episode. Sorry, uh, dear listeners. So, sorry, Rob, I was asking how are you doing. Oh, I'm fine. Thanks. Maybe I should start up my own little neighborhood watchmaking clinic so that I can say it and mean it rather than just saying it. And I don't know, you know, it's actually very interesting because I listened to the start of the McConaughey episode. It was actually interesting how you guys were bouncing off each other. Ireland, Manchester, la la la. I was living there. I was born one year before you started da 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 da. And then the coincidence of uh, the McGonagall brothers working in Switzerland while the Grenfell brothers were there. So it was very cool. And now you're in Dresden near Glastutter. You should actually seriously do that. Yeah, you're probably right. I should. Talking to John McGonagall, last night, when are we recording today? Well, it's the 24th of Feb. So we're a week uh, a week and a bit ahead of when this episode goes out. I was listening last night on the 23rd to John McGonagall's lecture that he gave for the engineers of Ireland. And that was uh, really fascinating stuff. It was about an hour long, I think. And it was fascinating. It was really great. It was a great listen. And if it's still available online, I think if anyone hasn't seen it, go check it out, go seek out John's teachings because, you know, he's a fascinating dude to listen to and, uh, Got a lot of experience to share with the community. It was a real pleasure to have him on as well. Such a modest, friendly guy, good sense of humor. And 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 if you think about it, he's actually, both brothers are living legends in the watch industry. I think they're so down to earth, but I don't, I, I don't think that people realize the recognition they get, but I don't think people realize how amazing they are. No, and it's easy to sort of let even modern greats like that slip out of the limelight because they don't put themselves in it too often. And watchmaking, it's one of those industries that really rewards people that like to self-promote, you know, like me. Actually, very interesting question for you, and I'm doing this on air because you and I are running at such high speeds for the real-time show that we don't always know what the other is doing for the show. You invited John. Did you have to twist his arm or was he okay to come on? Actually, it was a very painless process. And I, I don't know John personally. Or I didn't know John personally. I think we, we struck up quite a rapport now. So hopefully we'll get the chance to hang out sooner rather than later. And uh, I offered to represent him at an event in Ireland, should he not be able to make it himself, because I'm so taken by Elon and his new watches. I thought, Are you taken uh, by me? Am I taken by you? Yeah, you said oh. Alon. I'm so taken by Alon, you said. Oh, God. Not this again. <laughs> okay. I don't know what you're hearing, right? But it doesn't sound anything like your name. I think there's something wrong with your mic. No, it's nothing wrong with my <laughs> microphone. It's Elon, not Alon. <laughs> you, know, anyway. you, you know, the Americans used to call me when I lived there. Hey. Elon. No, they would call me alone. And then I would reply, but I'm not alone. <laughs> and then <laughs> they would look confuzzled at me. And I'm like, yeah, I'm standing here with you. And then they wouldn't get my joke. So oh. I would just quickly move on. 
Oh uh, yeah, probably because they probably thought they just like just clubs you in with like a generic Europeans and you know yeah, yeah, committed yeah, some yeah. incredible offensive act. Yeah. Um, yeah, I like John and I like Elon Watches and I also like the work he did with his brother Stephen on McGonagall Watches. And I was quite interested in McGon Watches, Stephen's other brand, his more accessible brand, which is still five figures, fair enough, but um, the lower end of that spectrum. And there's some pretty cool stuff there. They're kind of like that. I don't want to make this sound bad. A bit Frank Mullerish is what I was going to say in terms of the case shape. But I like them more than I like Frank Muller's. And I, I like very much the green rotor on those watches. I think it's tough, you know, because Irish imagery, like symbols, icons, you know, they're, they're a bit heavy handed sometimes with like the clover and the harp and the leprechauns, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to sort of take a lot of the Irish art and execute it in a way that doesn't feel like you're being bashed over the head with it. You know, like Celtic crosses and Celtic mm-hmm. knotwork and whatnot. Like if you put that on a rotor, it's a bit cheap and a bit like, uh, you know, so I think the green is an obvious one. You know, you can pull the green, like can use that in watchmaking and that works really well. It's not too offensive or in your face and maybe a bit of green and gold works nicely as well. Cause I know the flag is orange but you know it's gold it's actually very interesting for you to mention that because i have actually been thinking a lot about the, his design john mcgonagall's design yeah and it's and and it's actually a contemporary take on very iconic irish design features so that's very interesting for you to say that do me a favor rob you said it so quickly the second brand of stephen mcgonagall how do you spell it for our listeners m-a-g-o-n okay my god Oh my God. Okay, amazing. And we need to have Stephen on the show, for sure. Rob, we are <laughs> leaving the beaten path. We need to go back to the mailbag. Should I pick the first one? Yeah, go ahead. All right. So I was actually very excited when yesterday LVMH announced that they're reviving their dormant brand, Daniel Roth. Oh, yeah. What do you think of that? So it's coming back as part of the group. Just a bit of a backstory. By the way, Jeremy from London sent me this question. He said, what did you chaps think of LVMH reviving Daniel Roth as a brand? To get our listeners up to speed, Daniel Roth is a living legend. He's still alive. Back in the day, he sold the brand to the Hourglass Group the T family, amazing people, huge watch collectors, amazing retailers. They also bought the Gerald Genta brand back in the day. They owned both. Today, a publicly listed company, the Hourglass Group in Singapore. Um, they decided to focus back on retail and not being a brand or a watch manufacturer. They were good friends with the Bulgari family back in the day before LVMH owned them. They sold the Gerald Genta brand and Daniel Roth brands to Bulgari group. Um, Bulgari was already making their own watches in Neuchâtel in Switzerland since already, I believe, the 70s, early 80s. So it was a strategic fit, a natural fit. It is important to mention that both Mr. Gio Genta, today late Mr. Gio Genta, did not join that brand. They left very early on when they sold the brand. Same goes for Mr. Daniel Roth, who's still alive today. Um, the, uh, Gerald Genta went on designing watches for brands, but he also started a second watch brand called Gerald Charles. Mr. Roth, I think, also started a second brand, Rob, but you need to help me out there. Yeah, that one's called Jean Daniel Nicholas. So he's still up and running, running an uh, atelier brand. So what happened? Bulgari incorporated 
both brand names, Gerald Genta and Daniel Roth. At a certain point, they blended it into the Bulgari brand. Then you had these brands operating as calibers, and then they vanished completely. Then Bulgari, two, three years ago, revived the typical, iconic Gel Genta watches with the retrograde and jumping hour hands with Disney uh, figures on it, which are cool. They brought them back. They did well. And now the interesting thing happened. As you might know, the Arnaud family is the biggest shareholder of LVMH. And the youngest generation, which are five kids, they are all very active within the group. Most recently, the two elder kids, son and daughter, are on the fashion side of things. And the three younger boys, who have a different mother than the first two, are all in the watchmaking segment of LVMH. So we have Alexandre, who went from Rimowa to Tiffany, and we've discussed this extensively on this show, because he uh, was active when the Patek Philippe 5711 collab with Tiffany was launched. Then we have Frédéric Arnaud, who is the CEO of Tag Heuer. And the last one is Jean Arnaud. He's the baby of the family. And he made his first steps in the watchmaking industry at the watchmaking division of Louis Vuitton, so LV. And the interesting thing is Maître du Temple, which was an independent hotelogerie watch brand, got bought fully by LVMH, and they make 100% of the high complication calibers and watches for LV. Now, interestingly enough, they did a reshuffling within the group and the family. And Jean already gave a hint in one of the interviews a few months ago, and I believe that was the New York Times, that he wanted to revive Daniel Roth. I guess he got his way. Yesterday, they announced that in 2023, we'll see one piece, 20 pieces limited edition in 2023, fully made by Metro du Temple division of LVMH. Um, It's not clear yet who's going to be at the helm of this brand. Sorry for the long intro. Rob, what do you think? Well, maybe Daniel Roth himself will make a return. I mean, he hasn't been part of the company for quite some time. I think he officially left in 2000. Oh, that would be amazing. I didn't even think about that. That's a curveball. Not impossible, is it? I mean, uh, a lot has happened since he departed. I think he sold off like his management stake in the mid to late 90s of the company, but remained involved until Bulgari picked it up. And then obviously Bulgari, and then obviously Bulgari was subsequently bought by LVMH. So I don't really get the wording of the announcement. And I've read a few articles on all of our major media sites out there, like a blog to watch and Hadinki, and I was comparing the terminologies used, and they're quite similar. So they're obviously taken from the official announcement. And they're trying to sort of spin it that it will return as an independent brand with the support of Louis Vuitton, Le Fabrique de Temple. I, I, I don't really get what they're trying to say. Like, to me, it just sounds like, oh, they're reviving the name. It's part of the group. It's going to be you know, retreading the the ground for which the brand was known and respected uh, under its own label. And I think it's great. I think it's, uh, it's a nice brand. It has an identifiable look and the case is maybe an acquired taste, but for my money, it's a taste worth acquiring. 
And if Daniel Roth himself were to return, that would be a beautiful, beautiful end to uh, his time away from the eponymous brand. So, yeah. That would be amazing. Really full circle. And and you know what? I think it's not such a weird thought or idea you have because something big happened as well within the LVMH group, which is not maybe that relevant for our podcast. But I do find it interesting because Pharrell, I think, is an amazing musician and producer, but he's a big watch nerd. And he took the role that late Virgil Abloh left behind. So what that says is LVMH does bring on board the big guns. So that could maybe be an interesting um, vision you've been sharing here. Very curious to see what happens. Yeah, me too. I mean, we'll watch it with interest as it develops because it's uh, it's not often you see this. I mean, LVMH is known really for picking up brands that are motoring along and doing nicely and uh, can add something to the portfolio. It's it's uh, unusual to see them take a brand that was shelved and pull it back to life, but I think it's cool. I mean, you always say the more choice, the better. It's only a good thing for watchmaking lovers, and yeah, I think it's going to meet with success. The reaction so far in the community seems to be broadly positive from what I've heard. So do I, and um, I was visiting my buddy Roy Davidoff in his boutique in Geneva, um, I believe it was last month, and no, actually in December, sorry, so two months ago, and super cool because exactly when I came in, he just received a fresh, fresh, new old stock Daniel Roth sealed in plastic stills. That was amazing. So I put that up on my Instagram as well. Um, so it was almost a sign on the wall. Um, I think it will uh, do well. And I'm happy that the Arnaud family is doing it, actually. It, it seems that they are very deeply invested in watchmaking. And it's cool to see that actually the younger generation of the owners actually love watchmaking. So it's cool. Yeah, that is nice to see. And he's got the whole family working hard in that group now, or hardly working. I'm not sure which way around it goes. But I have another question for you. This is a good one. Uh, this is from Suzanne, came in via email. And it's kind of follows on from like Daniel Roth and being owned by LVMH, blah, blah, blah. The question is, the retailer Watchbox, so that's the guys in Philly, I think. Yeah, Govberg in Philadelphia. Yeah, right. They have already bought watchmaker Debitune, and they have now bought music box maker Reuger. Do you think that these acquisitions are positive for the industry or not? Thank you, Suzanne. Actually, interesting question. So uh, the music box maker is Rouge. Rouge. It's R- How is that how you say it? <laughs> I think so. Rouge. It's French, I guess. But it could be Rouge. But just to spell it quickly for our listeners, it's R-E-U-G-E. Very interesting because it's very ironic. We just discussed... Gel Genta and Daniel Roth being bought by a retailer, the Hourglass, I believe it was in the 80s, early 90s. And apparently it didn't really work out. Um, Watchbox, very quickly, Govberg is a uh, third, fourth, fifth generation jeweler in the US, Philadelphia, very successful. The father, Danny Govberg, was a visionary. He said pre-owned is going to be big. I believe about a decade ago, he set up with a power player from Hong Kong, I forgot his name, they set up Watchbox as a new entity. They didn't, they're not a marketplace. They're simply a retailer in pre-owned. 
They had inventory of over 160 million back in the day. They grew to a quarter of a billion stock. Two things they do very well, in my humble opinion, is they started focusing on the indies. And at a certain point, they had the biggest stock in the world of A. Lang and Sooners, FP Journes, The Betunes, and maybe Moser. And then the Betune, I don't think they were struggling, but I think they hit a glass ceiling. And um, fun fact, it's a Belgian uh, inventor. I forgot his name. I think it's Denis. Denis Flo Golet, who started the Betune. And I think they became friends. And Watchbox not so much took it over because they didn't weren't succeeding, but they're helping them to bring them to the next level. And I guess Suzanne's question is, is it a good or bad thing? Because is it weird that a retailer, especially a pre-owned dealer, buys a brand which does new watches? But I think there's a huge convergence going on in the watchmaking industry on all levels, types of retail, mono-brand retail by brands, mono-brand e-commerce, Pre-owned is becoming bigger than everything new sold every year. Um, so things are converging, literally. Bloggers are becoming powerhouse media players, m- selling watches, making collabs, becoming dealers. So in that sense, I don't think it's weird. As long as there's synergy, I think it's a good thing. Apparently, Rouge um, was a bit dormant. I think their collab with MBNF put them back on the map again. I, if I read correctly, Watchbox did not buy it in totality. So it, they didn't buy 100% of the shares. They became a majority shareholder. So me personally, as long as there's synergy, I think it's a good thing. And as long as you're transparent about it. Yeah, I think the transparency is important. And they certainly have been transparent about it. I was racking my brains when I read this question, trying to think of why it could be a bad thing. Really, I know like maybe the gut response that we always have is to be negative about these things. Like, oh no, that shouldn't happen. A retailer shouldn't buy a brand. But I mean, why shouldn't a retailer buy a brand? I was thinking, is it, I was thinking, is it possible that there's a chance the retailer, the pre-loved retailer, the retailer of pre-loved objects, should I say, um, is going to manipulate their own prices? to like create a favorable environment for Dibitoon? I can't see that being realistic. What do you think? How could it be bad? Well, originally it was perceived as bad where there were clear lines in the verticals of an industry. So in the watch industry, you had manufacturers, wholesalers, agents, retailers, consumers. Were clear borders between these two that started converging by brands buying their wholesalers and agents, and then they start doing their own mono brand, and then they did the same in ecom, right? And now, the 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 first brand ever, I believe, in the luxury industry was Louis Vuitton that verticalized completely. There was that was A to Z DTC brand, direct to consumer from A to Z. Everything they did was controlled by them. So that became a role model for many, and I think the first one to in the watch industry to do that is Audemars Piquet. So Audemars Piquet started about five years ago, canceling dealerships, nice and slow, and they want a full network of monobrand boutiques. Today, they call them lofts, so they don't have high street stores, but more of loft space, luxurious new type of retail. And they softened their strategy a bit. 
where they said in each continent will team up with a power player to open a joint venture boutique. So in Singapore, it's Hourglass. In London, I believe they teamed up with Watches of Sitson, if I'm not mistaken, etc., etc., etc. So taking that analogy, brands working with being bought by retailers would lead to a conclusion that no other dealer would want to sell the brand anymore because they feel disadvantaged. But in a world where everything is now and converging and verticalizing, so meaning that uh, the whole supply chain is dominated by the brand or manufacturer, it's, I think, less of an issue. The Betoon didn't have many dealers, I guess. Brands are cutting dealers worldwide, which right. is happening to me as well right now as we speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, no, I don't see that many downsides anymore. Yeah, I mean, I guess you, you hit the nail on the head there with your last point, especially your own personal experience of it. Like so many brands are taking advantage of this verticalization and removing their stock from retailers. There will be no third-party retailers left in the world if it carries on like this. So I, I think Debitune could probably walk into many retailers that 10 years ago might have expressed discontent with this relationship that it has with Watchbox. But now I think they'd be like, yeah, of course, if you want to be sold in here, then why not you sell in here? And yeah, maybe Watchbox has the advantage, the inside track, but so what, you know, um, they're sharing the love. So that's a good thing. I wanted to add one thing, if I may, Rob, because it's actually a very interesting discussion. So I, I, I salute Watchbox for the transparency in communicating. I do think they're market makers which they say they do, and which is okay if you're open about it. The cool thing is that that they funded the company in several rounds like a startup, of which my idol is Michael Jordan, who is a hardcore watch nerd as well. And like you and I, he loves Uwek. You see him often rocking his Uwek watch, which I think is cool. And that being said, I find it a pity that Caring sold off the Caring the, the Soulwind Watch Group, which uh, embodies Gérard Perigonulis now there, it was rather sudden sold off. They called it a management buyout by the CEO of both brands, Patrick Prunio, and they don't say who the investors are. And I think in today's world, that's a bit of a pity. But, and I have a feeling the retailers behind it. And they don't want to say because they think it's a conflict of interest towards the other retailers. And that makes it maybe full circle on the question why it could be negative. Yeah, but I think overall we are coming down on the positive side, right? Yeah. Yep. Okay, Suzanne, there you go. We think it's a good thing. And I suppose maybe the reason why is because Debitoon is a very interesting brand. And whenever interesting brands are allowed to exist, and so is Roige. <laughs> I've forgotten how you said it there. Roige. 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 Yeah, those guys. That make some pretty interesting stuff, actually. If you haven't seen it, you should go check it out. It's um, it's not the usual watchmaking fair, but it's it's decent. Uber cool. Imagine Uber they cool. were the... Yeah, yeah. Uber cool. They're, they're, old, they're the old music boxes. I mean, maybe everybody remembers a mechanical ballerina turning around make, dancing on music. That's what they originally used to make, but then very detailed and beautiful uh, composed uh, uh, music. 
I think we can say that it's a worthwhile addition to the industry, isn't it? As a brand, yes. you know, it's, it's good to have it there. We don't yes. need too many of them, but you know, it's like automatons, like they're great yeah. to have in the world, but we don't need one uh, on every street corner. So that's that Suzanne. I'm going to move on to the next question. Now this is from William. This also came in via email. I'm not sure where William's from, but hi William, wherever you're listening. I hope it's a nice sunny day for you today, unless you're allergic to sun, that would be terrible. Okay. Uh, his question does the brand Linda Verdelin still exist? <laughs> Lol. And what do you think of the brand? Okay. Uh, Alan, does Linda Verdelin still exist? <laughs> it's very... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm laughing. Yeah, it's snide. It's, it's such a snide question from William. No, <laughs> like, no. Yeah, you know it what? does, you, William. <laughs> you, well, yeah, it does. But you know what? I was... It's a fair, it's a fair question. I had to check. <laughs> no, no, you're laughing. I was I literally... I don't know why I was pondering that question myself because I am actually a huge fan of both Mr. Linda and Mr. Verdelin, the two Scandinavian gentlemen yeah. that are rock and roll. They went to yeah. London. They took the, the market by storm. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember vividly with our mutual friend, Robert Diambour, that we had a whole discussion about it, why it's cool and they should deserve more recognition. And I haven't heard from both gentlemen, the brand, or anybody, and I haven't seen their watches pop up anywhere. So I had to look when I that question popped into my mind, and that's why I laughed when I saw this question coming in by email by William, that I'm like, did they? I, I don't think they went bust or bankrupt or belly up. I don't think they dissolved the company. So yeah, I think they're up and running. And you know what? I think we should invite them on the show, Rob. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm a fan, actually, of the watches themselves. But I'll tell you this. I'm not so much a fan that I've actually bought one. And I think that's kind of the problem that Linda Verdelin have experienced because I think the brand is really struggling, if I'm being frank, because that's a big thing, a big statement on both of our parts to actually have to check. You know what I mean? Like, we would know. Like, we are... I think it's fair to say, and I think our audience will forgive me for saying this, but we're quite keyed into the watchmaking industry. You know, we, we, we have our ear close to the ground. We generally know what's going on with any brand you care to mention. Now, this is a brand that we've both got, you know, a soft spot for, have loved certain models from in the past. I love the general aesthetic. And I think that that's, uh, that there was always, I believe there was always a place for Linda Verdelin in the industry. But again, like I say, I never bought one. I was never even close. And I think that people want brands like that to exist, but they rarely put their money into them. And that's a problem. And that's something I realized myself when I was thinking about brands like, say, Schofield, for example. Now, I love Schofield. And I want Schofield to exist. And when I started to realize like the, the economics of a brand like that, I realized how important it was that if I want a brand like that to exist, I need to buy the products. Because if you don't, those companies cease to exist. And I think Linda Verdelin is probably on the way out. I, and I, I apologize to our listeners that find it annoying that I spell so much, but I got so much feedback from listeners that they love to Google what brand we're talking about. And if we go too fast or don't pronounce it properly, they don't know what we're talking about. So very quickly, Linda Verdeling is L-I-N-D-E, new word, W-E-R-D-E-L-I-N. And that's those two stuck together.com. 
Um, their Danish started in 2002. So we're talking about 21 years down the line. I remember vividly 20 years ago, I saw the first watch ever, mechanical automatic watch with little keyholes on the bezel and you can click in a board computer. Oh, so that was so you, cool. You remember that? Yeah, they were my favorites. That Those was, were freaking was, awesome. Yeah, it was top. Bring that yeah, back. Exactly. So they were OG, innovative, uh, they were skiers, Danish skiers. They loved it. They wanted it. Even without the board computer, the watch was freaking cool. It had this 70s vibe, call it a bit AP-ish, la, la, la. But they had their own, or they still have, their own signature design line. Um, they have a right of existence. I, in the end, I wanted to become a dealer. I negotiated with the gents. I don't know. It never worked out. I don't even remember why, but... I think it's super cool. Do you remember the Spidolite titanium? How could I forget? I mean, Spidolite is just, yeah, that's that's what I think of when I think past the uh, clip-on computers. Yeah, exactly. So, mm. so, guys, go Google it. Let us know if you want them on the show. And we'll promise you, we'll ask them straight out. These guys are cool. They can handle us. They're Danish. They're tough as hell. They're neo-Vikings. We can ask them straight up, guys, do you still exist? And they'll laugh. And they'll answer <laughs> So I hope they laugh. I hope they laugh and I don't burst out crying. That would be a terrible start no, to an interview. No, 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 no. I'm actually very curious well, what their evolution is. So I'm going to forward them this episode the day it goes live. So hereby promised on air. Okay, Rob, I have a question for you. Our buddy, Christopher Didrichsen. All right, Chris. And really, Chris, we, we, we appreciate your love. You, you are the OG every episode you share on your Instagram stories. And we really, really appreciate the passion. He's basically part of the team now. Yeah, almost. <laughs> what he asks, what would you, Robin Alon, do if you didn't work in the watch slash jewelry industry? Guessing Rob would be a pilot. Wink. I am a pilot. Yeah. <laughs> I am a pilot. Okay, so you say that very often, Rob. Who do you pilot? Your drone? Uh, your, in your dreams? Where do you pilot to? Sitting in a plane every week doesn't make you a pilot. You know, um, I don't know. I don't know if I told you this, but I I crashed my drone in the Arctic recently. I lost it. <laughs> Did I tell you that? Yeah, with Fortis, right? Uh, yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah, Fortis yeah. Fortis is where I um, started being renowned as a world famous pilot, thanks to uh, Fortis ambassador Mark Rollier, who is a pilot. He is actually a pilot. He actually flies a plane. Uh, he and I went up in his two seater experimental plane, the Turbine Legend, and were doing some loops and barrel rolls and nose dives and tricks above the uh, Alps in Switzerland, which was pretty cool. And he let me fly the plane a little bit to uh, to our destination. I wasn't actually doing any tricks, but I did have the controls for a couple of minutes. And so ever since then, I have tongue-in-cheek reminded people at every turn that I, I am a pilot. Even though I don't have a pilot's license, I cannot take off or land I definitely am not to be trusted uh, at the controls of an aviation machine, but I have flown a plane for a couple of minutes, so I'm a pilot. Um, but it's actually, it's almost got me into a lot of trouble a couple of times because I, I went on a hot air balloon ride recently and um, I was wearing my flight suit, which I bought after I became a pilot with Mark as a joke. And I wore it on the, my first trip to the Arctic with Fortis and I wore it to this hot air balloon ride and because it's green and I had a Swiss military patch on the shoulder, the pilot of the balloon thought I was from the Swiss air force. And in my broken German, I confirmed his suspicions that I was actually 
um, a Swiss pilot. Dude, you're doing illegal stuff now on air. You know that, right? And the whole Swiss industry is listening to our podcast. <laughs> it's, 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 it's not the kind of illegality that people care about. Like when somebody pretends to be, accidentally pretends to be a Swiss pilot in the middle of Saxony, I don't think anybody gives a damn. But uh. my passengers, my co-passengers on this balloon flight might have ended up giving a damn because this guy suddenly decided that I was qualified to fly a balloon. If I could fly like a, a, a jet plane, he was like, oh, you can help me with the balloon flying. And he was he was asking me for like readouts on the computer when we were up there. And I was, I'd never been in a balloon before. So I just kind of winged it, ironically, got away with it, pulled off an amazing landing of a balloon with these five other passengers in place. And he never knew. He never knew that I wasn't a pilot. I seemed to get away with it. So I'm sticking with it now. And it's a, just a running joke, especially with Fortis. Every time there's an, an aircraft of any description, be it like a, a drone or a microlight or a helicopter, you know, like they, they always look to me to volunteer to fly it, even though I really shouldn't. I know why. I know. I know why you're doing that. Because on the next space experiment Fortis does, you don't only want to be invited. You actually want to join in the cabin of the space shuttle i know i'd love to be an astronaut yeah Yeah, yeah. i would i I would go if i was offered you know about 10 10 years ago no not that long seven years ago or so um ed malan actually offered me the chance to go on that parabolic flight that Mm. was quite Mm. famously spread around the media by by moser when it when it occurred but at the time you wouldn't believe this i was mortally terrified of flying I was scared of flying my entire life until I got the job with Nomos and was forced to fly like 200 times a year. Really? Yeah, I was so scared. Like I, I, I would avoid flying at all times. I hadn't been on a plane for, um, I don't know how many years, five or six years at the time. And I would do stupid stuff. Like I would take trains across Europe to avoid flying. So I said no to Moser and I regret that ever since. It's the biggest regret that I actually have in the watch industry. So how did you overcome that fear, Rob? Oh, well, I got lucky on the way out of Basel one year. It was the first year I was with NOMOS, so it was 2016. I was sat next to an air traffic controller called Hans from Karlsruhe. And he could tell that I was a bit of a nervous flyer. And he asked if I would like to talk about it. And I asked him all the questions I'd ever had about planes and the sounds they make and the feelings that you get, like when you are up above the clouds and the plane seems to drop 50 feet or something suddenly, or the engine sound changes, or you can hear this whirring near the back door and what's this, that, and the other. And he answered all my questions. I laid all my fears. And ever since, now that I understand aviation a lot more, I've become a bit of a, a nut, you know, a bit of a flight nut. You know, I love flying now. I absolutely adore it. And I'm a pilot. So yeah, whatever. Uh, anyway, <laughs> To the question, I, I haven't answered it yet because I wouldn't be a pilot, as amusing as that is, but what would you be? I always, always wanted to become a jeweler, I, an entrepreneur and jeweler. I've never worked for somebody else. I actually have always been a jeweler. I've been literally crawling as a baby on the shop floor, working summers from age 12. I mean, I grew up with the G-Shock Swatch era, and at the age of 12, I don't know if you remember that, Rob, the moon swatch things we see now seem rare but back in the late 80s beginning 90s when they came out to chronos we had exactly the same uh, mania it was literally swatch mania we would buy parallel although we were swatch dealers but we couldn't get the chronos parallel from the u.s italy chronograph so back in there i remember it vividly was 850 guilders which today is around 400 something euros 
although they were retailing quarter of the price and then sell them off. So, so the, 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 the gray business started with the swatches and the, the frenzy and the, the, the flipping and the parallel. It was, it was, it was, it was funny and amazing. And, um, so I always wanted to be an entrepreneur and jeweler. You know, I daydreamed a bit. What would I do? I, for a brief moment when I was in uni, study economics and I studied in the US and lived there. I thought about doing M&A banking, but I very quickly let go of that idea. Um, I am not really creative. I'm not jealous, but I admire creativity. Hence why I get so excited on this show. When we have designers and or watchmakers on the show, they are magicians. I admire them. I admire creativity. So that's something I really, really appreciate. And if it wasn't in this industry, and I think that both goldsmiths and jewelry makers and watchmakers are architects. So if it had to be something outside this industry, it will be uh, architecture in the classic sense of the word. So making buildings. So I'm a huge fan of architecture. Um, and and a backup would be a photographer. I admire photographers. Um, today, everyone with a phone is a amateur photographer. And if you take your socials a bit seriously, you admire any photographer, right? So um, if I had to mention two icons that I admire, I guess it's uh, architect uh, Geary and photographer is Lindbergh for me. Are you a good photographer? I think I have a skill to be a good entry-level amateur. I don't give myself the time. I do have a great Canon kit. When I went twice on safari with my wife, I made Nat Geo level photos of wildlife. Nice. Which one of them, one of them actually got featured on the Nat Geo website. Wow. If, if it doesn't pop up in Google anymore, I'll have to use the time machine on the internet. But I have proof somewhere that I made it to the Nat Geo website. Well, that's a pretty high bar. Yeah. Obviously on the amateur section. Yeah, they didn't pay for my picture, but um, it was a competition. Um, so, and, 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 and this is a shout out in the watch industry. I think one of the best photographers, uh, amateur, yeah, hobbyists in the watch industry is, I think his handle is Palio Pelle on Instagram. It's, um, well, I think he's retiring now, but the museum director of Omega, our Greek friend, have you met him? No, I no? met him. I don't think I have. I suppose the only chance I might have done would have been 2012. Would he have been there then? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, we need to see if we can get him on the show. He's an amazing guy and he's an amazing photographer and he does uh, Hasselblad gray monochrome scale photography. And, and that's why I like Lindbergh. I think if you can make images that speak not a thousand words, but a million words, in not moving images, so photos on a grayscale, you're amazing. And and unfortunately, I am aware of the quality differences between entry level Canon, Nikon, Leica, and then Hasselblad, and it's a curse because a lot of watch nerds love photography as well, and that's also an expensive hobby. Um, so long story short, am I good? No. Would I love to spend more time on this hobby? Yes. Good answer. Very good answer. And what about you, Rob? Besides you dreaming, thinking that you're a pilot, an imposter. 
Yeah, I I wouldn't be a pilot. Um, it's an interesting question because every so often, you know, if you're pushing hard enough in your career, you always come up against moments where you have to ask yourself, am I going to continue to push in this way? Maybe it's time for me to leave this industry and do something else. So I actually have thought about it in quite a practical way relatively recently. I suppose I have to apply a level of reality to the question, right? So like if I could choose to be anything, I would have been a pro bowl level running back or wide receiver in the NFL and have like four or five Super Bowl rings uh, to my name. But um, if I'm being realistic, I mean, my dream job is has always been to be a writer, but I guess I am a writer. So it's a bit of a cop out if I say, well, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be a watchmaker or a podcast host. I'm going to be a writer. That's already a, a massive component of my life and my professional undertaking. So if I had to do something else, you know, I always loved being a barman and I always thought I'd like to be a landlord of a pub. And recently I've even taken up cooking. And although I don't like to eat very much myself and have a very strange relationship with food, I do like to cook for other people. And I really enjoy making breakfast treats for people. I don't know why. I honestly don't know why. And uh, I watch uh, Kitchen Impossible with my girlfriend sometimes because she loves it. And I've been fascinated by some of the confectionery odysseys that certain maestros go on to perfect their craft. And I've seen some amazing stuff, some uh, patisserie that really blows my mind. I, I would quite like to pursue that maybe. But if I were to stop watchmaking... Now, if I were to say, okay, this is the last episode of the real-time show, I'm giving up and I'm going off into the wilderness and I'm going to do something else, I would go into the fossil industry with my father, who is a uh, well-known geologist, paleontologist, and I would become a uh, dinosaur broker and arrange sales for dinosaur specimens between diggers, preparators, and either private clients or academic institutions. So I'd be uh, I'd be somewhere a, a mix between the pilot I am now, Indiana Jones, and uh, Dr. Alan Grant, I guess. <laughs> That's without the whip, or maybe with the whip, actually. I'll take the whip and the Velociraptor claw. Okay. That's what I do. That's amazing. <laughs> so... From now on, your dad actually is my son's hero. So he's full in the dino uh, uh, swing of things. Um, that's actually very interesting. But um, I want to state this on the record. I joke a lot with and about Rob, but I'm actually, <laughs> I'm actually, no, I'm, I, I have a very high esteem and regard of him. And I love him for the fact that everything he does, he doesn't do well, doesn't do above average. He does it near excellence. So if you guys don't know Rob that well, he really is a watchmaker. I was obviously joking at the beginning of the episode that about the neighborhood watchmaker and the friendliness. He is friendly unless things don't go his way. And then he's freaking cranky and an a-hole <laughs> to deal with. I get a lot of hashtag me too banter behind the scenes and David can vouch for that. It's because you don't understand the hashtag. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Oh, you willfully misunderstand it, and like you yeah, use yeah, it in yeah. a way that if anybody but us saw it, they'd have they'd have your guts for garters, mate. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever. Anyways, but he is a journalist. I'm not. 
and I don't have the ambition to become one. I do admire word magicians because journalists and writers are literally magicians with word and very creative. He does that really well. Obviously, he's good on the mic. That's why I asked him to come on the show with me. Yeah. This is not a joint project. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So no, but but I actually wouldn't want to do this show with anybody else. And the funny thing is, I've been asked many times to set up a new show and I've said no. And the timing was just right. And very organically, we came up with this idea together, Rob and I. And yeah, you hear him sometimes bragging that he makes jewelry for Christmas for his family, but he really does that. And it seems sometimes he does too much. And same goes for me. But I think that's the beauty of being an independent entrepreneur. And you have the luxury to do what you like. And that's the reason why we also do this podcast. We just jumped in, heads in first into the cold water, and we'll see where it takes us because it gives us joy and energy. Have you got a point? Uh, no, <laughs> I just wanted to say, buddy, I love you. I love you too, man. I love you too. Okay, enough um, with the bromance now. Okay, okay. All Here's right, a next question one. for you. Next one from uh, Edward. And he says... Quite simply, when is the Rolex bubble going to burst? Well, I think it's popped already. What do you think? Interesting question, and it's a rather bold statement. So let's define it a bit. What's a bubble? Bubble means that it's too much hot air in a balloon or a bubble, right? And it's not natural. It can't sustain. For me, the baseline is every watch that sells above list price goes into inflation and therefore inflates literally a balloon, hot air balloon. Now, these deltas we've seen, delta I mean in a financial term, the big difference between nominal value and market value, let's say, for the sake of it. So it's a parity, a difference in price or value. We've never seen such a parity, a delta since COVID in watchmaking in general, especially on the three top brands. I don't want to use the word Holy Trinity because that's a big discussion we have on this show because who belongs in the Holy Trinity? But the majority thinks it's Patek Philippe, uh, Rolex, and Audemars Piquet. No, they don't. The majority does not think that. People think that those three are in the Holy Trinity. When they're new to watchmaking, the biggest delta during the last three years were on these three brands. And that's the analogy that flows out for them, okay? Due to just market value and commoditizing the products these brands make. Now, the Delta is coming down hard and I don't think we're done yet. So yes, I agree with you, Rob. It burst already. But where do we stop or where will it normalize? I think we're going to see that for especially these three brands and maybe all other brands, we're going back to where the aftermarket pricing goes towards market list price, so recommended retail price, RRP. So I think it burst. I I don't think we've seen the end of it. What do you think, Rob? Well, that's interesting because that is what I was most interested to hear from you. Do you think we've seen the end of it or not? Because I I think, I mean, we can definitely see that we've come down off the top of the mountain, right? I mean, there's been an obvious slide in the last few months and I am actually glad to see it. Uh, I (laughs) I sold my one Rolex at like the right time, it would seem. And I was looking at models similar to it recently, and I was amazed to see that they they tumbled already and that I could buy back the same thing for a couple of thousand less than what I sold it for, which was just nuts. Um, but where is the floor? 
Now, will we ever get to a point where a second-hand Rolex trades for less than a new one again? They do, actually. They well, do. Which, which, which models do? Which models do? So that's very interesting. So I have very fierce discussions with my team, the Ace team. Should we or shouldn't we do TikTok? La, 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 la. I'm not such a fan. But okay, I did my homework, so I start following a bit, posting a bit, and 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 I, I'm blown away by this whole new trend that only goes on on TikTok, especially New York on 47th Street, where dealers film themselves haggling over B2B gray market sales of especially Rolexes. So I find that very intriguing. Now I saw a post come up, a guy, an English guy in Dubai teaching people not to buy the following five Rolex models at RRP because you would be stupid because those five actually sell in Dubai for less. And he was talking about the Sky Dweller Ever Rose on rubber. He was talking about the Submariner Yellow Gold Blue Bezel. He was talking about... I forgot the other three, but surprisingly, he didn't even t- talk about a Cellini model either. But um, they're coming down. Let me give you a real-life example. We had a customer who commissioned us an Explorer 136 millimeters, full stickers, unsized, even the plastic protective bezel on the lunette. He wanted 9450 Autumn. Pricing came down, came down, came down. We sold already three others in the time being, but this guy's watch wasn't moving because he wanted the top price for it. Actually, today, we sold it at 8500 mm-hmm. That's, let's say, about what? 1500 above RRP. I believe RRP is around 7 ish for that watch. So I asked the buyer, why did you buy it? Why are you paying premium? I'm 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 very honest in my selling, always have been, especially on pre-owned watches. I tell people you buy it, pay attention. You're buying way above RRP. Don't you want to wait for it? Because I feel that my integrity is compromised if I don't say that, right? Yeah. We're not here in the business of money grab. So we buy pre-owned, we trade in pre-owned, we commissioned, we get consigned, and we buy and etc. We do everything, full service. But we always manage expectations. So the majority of people say, hey, I'm willing to pay 10, 20% above RRP because I don't want to wait. And the majority of the people that buy these at these prices are actually not that stupid. They say, hey, Rolex goes up on average 7 to 10% every year. Yeah. Right? And we've seen price increases all over the board two, three times last year. And I mean, this year already, we're not even at the end of Q1. And almost every brand did a price increase already in January, February, and March. So are they that stupid? Actually, they're not that dumb. Because if you look at the future cash flow model, they already embedded the future price when they finally are eligible to go to an AD to pick up their watch. They're paying the same price, but at, in this time being, they enjoyed it on their wrist for one or two years or three years mm-hmm. or five years. Mm-hmm. So actually, are they that stupid? And then I'm like, hey, I never looked at it that way. I'm always opposed to pay above list. That's something that I've been raised with, right? right so right. So I think it's a good thing the bubble is coming down. What is, I think, organic and natural? Indeed, what these guys say and girls, 
maybe one to three years of price increase embedded in today's price is nominal for them the same, but at least they can enjoy it, right? And since in interest is coming up, but still the money in the bank costs you money still today, even with the increased interest rates. So their analogy is, let me get my money off the bank. I'll pay a bit more now, but it's a, a double win for them. They don't lose money on the bank and they can enjoy it for two, three years on their wrist. And the watch appreciates anyways. Oh, that's an interesting way of looking at it and a good way, certainly something that I will think about in the future because it isn't something that I've ever considered when it comes to paying over list now. The fact that that over list price will one day be list price and you'll have the watch in the interim period. Um, yeah, food for thought. But to answer or to at least put a hat on the question, let's say, of Edward, I can't predict exactly where the floor will be and I'm sure that the floor for all models will be slightly different and it will largely come down to supply. If Rolex is able or desirous of increasing, if Rolex is able or wants to increase production, then if Rolex is able to or wants to increase production, then I imagine that they will knock off a big chunk of value on the pre-owned market. But I'm not sure that that's really Rolex's goal right now. Certainly not an urgent goal on their side of things. They're, they're doing what they can to control the market, but they aren't looking to solve all of its ills overnight. So, yep, watch this space. I want to add to something, Rob, because what you said is very interesting. So Rolex is really hedging it. And it means the market and demand and supply. They are apparently building a whole new factory that could take up 3,000 new employees. And I've heard stories, not from Rolex, but that's speculation in the market. So it's not from primary source. So it's hearsay, which I don't like, but okay, for the sake of the hypothesis, let's say they'll amp up their production by 20%. The rumors are, or it's been said that they produce about a million wristwatches a year. So they'll go up in the next decade to 1.2 million. That's a rather hefty jump, I think. Did you listen to the episode that we recorded with Guillaume Lede? Yeah, yeah, he also said that, didn't he? Well, he said he had some solid figures in there, straight oh, from yeah. the horse's mouth, to be honest. Right. And it, by right. the sounds of things, they're already at 1.2. So they're at, actually a little bit higher than we all assumed. I mean, I'd been under the impression for years that they were about 800,000 to a million pieces. And I know that's a very broad spectrum. It's a 20% spectrum itself, but that's what I'd always heard and what I'd always yeah. been told and what I'd always yeah. believed. But yeah. sounds like they actually have jacked up production quite significantly in the past. And there's just so many more people that can buy Rolexes these days. They can't keep up with that or don't yeah. want to. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah very well. So, so Rob is referring to the episode that he recorded with uh, Guillaume Ladet, the CEO of Nevada Grenchen and Vulcan and uh, Excelsior Park. Um, check it out on our website, The Real Time Show. Uh, so that's www.therealtime.show. Um, so yeah, he said that indeed, because I think he spoke to the fool. Um, so okay, very good. At least I didn't say it. So let me go back to my analogy and my hypothesis. So they are going to jump up even more. But I think their hedge is they're protecting the bottom side or the market by introducing that certified pre-owned program that they launched a few months, weeks ago. So yeah, very interesting. 
um, I would love to hear from our listeners. What do you think about paying more than list price for watches? So that's, I would love to see those questions and or feedback come into our mailbag. Um, Rob, next question. Um, yeah, okay. Well, okay. We have time for one more item on the show ooh, today. Ooh. It's not so much a question, although I'm going to turn it into a question. I received a press release from my friend Peter Howarth of Show Media London the other day, and I would like to share what was in that press release with you because it concerns one of our very good friends and a former guest of the show. That's George Bamford. Now, Bamford has released with Thomas Pink a famous German street shirt maker in England, a new GMT. And I've got some images for you, Alan, if you'd like to take a look at them in front of Mm -hmm, you there. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what we have here is an automatic titanium GMT watch with an internal rotating bezel powered by the Salita SW330-2, which has 25 joules, 28,800 VPH and a 56-hour power reserve. Now, it's got a blasted case, a sort of bead blasted case, or media blasted case, as we say these days, to be a little less specific. Very, very nice. It comes with, uh, it comes with either it comes with either a white dial or a black dial. There'll be 30 pieces of each made, and it has beautiful baby pink, Thomas Pink-inspired accents on the tip of the GMT hand and also on the seconds hand, and also at 12 o'clock, and it has the pink logo between center and six little obscure date window at three o'clock not too shouty comes on what looks like a black fabric strap and also with a black rubber strap in the box as well price is 1700 pounds gbp and it is available from the store so you can find that store thomas pink 106 german street london sw1y6ee opening times 10 30 a.m to 6 30 p.m <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag no advertisement well there's no it's not an advertisement i mean it's an advertisement I'm, I'm sharing the release of this watch it's not a paid advertisement it's just because i think it's interesting and it's from a friend and it's about a friend's latest effort and it's uh interesting for me because i'm a big fan of cross industry collaboration as i've always said so i like stuff like this and i wanted to present it in a very official manner because i want to hear what you think i want you to take a look at the watch do you like the watch do you like the project do you like the collab go ahead who has listened to the episode with george bamford knows that both rob and i are friends with george we like him we love him and there's not much that i don't like what he does i bought the cookie monster version of the bamford london for my son i actually i'm a victim of our own show because every time we do an episode i get more excited about whomever we speak to and watchmaking and i freaking buy more watches so after that episode i ordered the collab with land rover the range rover the land rover with uh, uh bamford it still didn't come in so george if you're listening to this episode where the heck is my watch <laughs> <laughs> so, um so okay i am a sucker for titanium so my uh, and thomas pink i like the brand i used to buy their shirts in new york and london so i see it as a upper tier mid-range brand it's luxurious um their font used to be this this bank note font but on the dial of this watch i see they have a new font um i think it's actually cool it's a very tranquil dial it's very tranquil for bamford standards 
Um, the case shape, I wouldn't imagine Pink going for it because I see them as a classical brand, several row-ish, mm. but then a bit more dandy, okay? And then I'm like, oh, yeah, they're dandy-esque. And the Bamford case is dandy-esque. I wouldn't think they would go for titanium because titanium is seen a bit uh, too watch-y. Mm-hmm. I would have thought they would go for steel polished. I think it's very cool. I think the pink works very well with the silver white-ish dial. Um, yeah, fun. And I think we had many discussions on this show with George and all others, including Second Second. And these two are the king and emperor of um, collabs. And we can decide whom takes the reign, right? But I, I'm giving the emperor title to George. <laughs> and then Second Second takes the king title. But again, my stance is... As long as it adds value, the more, the better, right? So <laughs> right. if 60 pink fans will pick up this watch, good for them. Welcome to the watch collecting world. Will watch collectors buy this? I don't think so, unless their surname is pink or their all their dress shirts are made by pink or if they love the color pink. Well, I think that's quite a broad demographic that you just described there. And I finally understand your comment to Romaric on last week's episode. Um, when you said he'd taken George's crown, I was thinking, whoa, shots fired at Bamford's. Oh, how's this going to go down? Well, we'll leave it in because with the real-time show, we have no choice. We've got to keep it real. Now I see what you meant was he's taken George's place and George has ascended to the role of holy emperor overseeing the... I see it now. I get it. Okay, yeah, I get yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it was, yeah. It was a bit of a, a, a dab towards George because... I know he's a fan of our show. And um, it was a bit of that. But Romaric, the founder of Second Second, the man behind the show, he's not there yet, okay? I mean, come on. George has a long track record, and he's done amazing things. And the big difference for our listeners, um, George morphed into a watchmaker as well. He has a brand. He has an own atelier. I've been there, The Hive, in Mayfair, London. He literally has an atelier there, guys. So this is not a, a fancy marketing brand that that pretends or it's not an imposter. Now, yeah. Second Second is not a watch brand. He doesn't have the ambition to become one, although we urge him on the show to do so. But um, he's getting there. But but they do a different thing. And, and, and for the record, they are mates, they're buddies, and they made collabs together as well, right? So yeah, yeah. Well, 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 you uh, you urged him to start his own brand, maybe. I don't think he should, personally, but it's good that there's two opinions there, as always, in this show. No, he should, he um, should, he should. Well, I think, there you go. I, I, I think that, I think one day we all, all of us, will be a bit tired of the high tide of collabs. And I am very much at fault as well, because at Ace, we did five years, six years, one a year. This year, we have already seven confirmed. And it might be that like Romaric, I'm going to go to one a month. And with the real-time show, you and I also want to do one. So we're also at fault at feeding this, do I dare to say, bubble? Well, I don't I don't see it as fault because I like it. Because I don't think that you can do too much of a good thing, really, in, in that way. I think as long as it's relevant and to people, to buyers, to watch fans, then more power to it. I, I, I just don't see 
the reasoning behind the limitation of limitation when it's attractive to so many people. Me too, me too. But but George hedged that risk of of a trend fading. Okay, let me not call it a bubble. But mm. Romaric, what is he going to do if if brands don't want it, consumers don't want it anymore? And he's so fantastic. He's an artist. Oh yeah, no doubt. I'm not worried about him. Yeah, his creativity will pour in another direction. But but he lives and breeds watches. That's what he loves. So I would it would be a shame if we would lose him to another industry. That's what I'm saying. Uh, I suppose it's possible, but I think that there's a lot of uh, a lot of life left in that concept yet, and I think that there's loads of brands that you can approach and work with. And like you say, he is an artist, and his style, uh, as we learned on the show last week, his style is really informed by his own limitations as a, as an artist. As, as, by his own admission, he doesn't draw, and he's not particularly skilled with like computer design software and so he really found a way to use more analog materials uh, to his uh, to his advantage and it's it's fascinating to watch i think that there's there's plenty of space for him you see because i think that his brand is that master collaborator it's different from george it's very different you know i know you 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 can you're comparing them and contrasting them in different ways. And you are like explaining um, at length, the nuances of their, of their different trajectories in the in- industry. But he is uh Romaric is definitely like a, an excellent uh, addition. He's like the secret source to something. Whereas Bamford could be the something, uh, especially in the cases like this, like this watch itself. I've been staring at this uh, Bamford pink collab and there is something that was weird about it. It stuck out to me from the, outset but i wasn't sure what it was or whether i knew what i was looking at i believe if you take a look at this i believe that that gmt hand is loomed right yeah and the hour and the minute hands are not not, yeah which is very interesting and i'm sure our listeners will have something to say about the functionality of that but i think that that's kind of cool that it places the gmt complication uh, in a position of absolute importance above all else. So, yeah, uh, so yeah, I like it. And, I, I like and it. you know, and you know what? If I had to guess why that is done, I think the eighty percent of the clientele of Pink is literally flying over the Atlantic, London, New York, London, New York. But the interesting thing is, when you look at the the black dial one, it appears that the hand has a black infill instead, and doesn't look to be loom. Curious. Curious. I like it. I'm a, I'm all for it. I think that it's a, a surprising choice by Pink to choose this uh, titanium blasted case. As you mentioned, it's a very tool-ish look, but I, I, I'm really taken by it. I think it's refreshing. I love the pairing of this watch with the green velvet jacket in the press release. That is, uh, that's class, to be honest. And if I had to choose between the white and the black, I would take the black one. All right. I think that's going to wrap it up for today, isn't it? It's been a blooming exciting show. There's been some good questions and we took them in some odd directions as we often do. Thanks for the energy today. That was really um, a memorable episode and uh, good to pick up the conversation of the king and emperor of customization. What's more, 
once more because that's always always a lot of fun uh, all right we'll be back next week as usual with another q a and an interview with one of watchmaking's finest if you'd like to get in touch in advance of those shows and be part of the real-time show you can contact us on instagram i'm there at rob nuds that's r-o-b-n-u-d-d-s and alon is findable at a-l-o-n-b-e-n-j-o-s-e-p-h alternatively you can contact us via email either rob at the realtime.show or alon at the realtime.show We will see you soon. Until then, stay safe and keep on ticking.